Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Tuesday. Just finished my last uh, lecture for the semester in college. Let's see if we can knock off one of these. Here, a big week full of stuff. Hanukkah is obviously around the corner. Um, Today, I'm juggling around my sponsors a little bit this week, well, for a reason. Uh, I'll tell you one in a second, but today's uh, podcast is being sponsored by my good friend, the Leventhals, who now live in Pennsylvania, near Gettysburg, in that area, and uh, Ed is uh, sponsoring this and another lecture also, in memory of his folks, uh, Herschel ben Mayor Levy and Shina Bas Moshe, his parents and his wife's parents, is also being sponsored by Mrs. Leventhal, they're both MDs, Teresa Baker and Claude Baker, <laughs> And Havald and the Shams as they say. I actually was uh, speaking with Ed the other day, and he was talking about uh, Jonathan Sachs that I spoke about a little while ago, and you know the impact he had on him, and so on and so forth. And that led me to think, because uh, in, in a conversation you know, it came across, you know, uh, is there any other Jonathan Sachs out there in terms of impact on the Goyim? That's basically what it boiled down to. I remember the other time, make a kiddush Hashem. I'm not talking about the Jews. I'm talking about the people who are not Jewish, which can redound on the Jews. But I'm talking about there, and uh, I tried to make the point. What was that a month ago already? By now, or whenever that Sachs was kind of unusual, or unique in that. And I just was talking with that and thinking, who else do I know, a rabbi or somebody like that, Jewish intellectual, who made such a big impact on the general world? And, you know, the name I came up with, it wasn't easy, was uh, Menashe ben Israel back in the 17th century. That's what I'm going to talk about today. The Jonathan Sachs of the 17th century. <laughs> Menashe ben Israel was a, I think everybody knows is a Dutch rabbi. It's not the right word to use, but you'll see what I mean in a second. He lived his life in Amsterdam in the 1600s. He did not live long. Uh, he died at the age of 54, 55, something like that. Uh, maybe younger. And uh, it's interesting, what what would happen if he lived another 10, 20 years? I think it would have been very, very interesting. That such is the nature of biography. Some people nicked off Bebo. You know, some people died relatively young age. He was a prolific author. So uh, you'll see what I mean. Here we go back to the world of the Sephardim, especially what they call not the Sephardim Tahurim. Can I use the word Sephardim Tamim, the Anusim, the Moranos, the Converses, and all the rest of it. Uh, I'm getting tired of repeating myself, but I don't mind. Uh, you will perhaps recall, I mentioned this many times, but repetition is probably good for your soul. Uh, we had the Jews in Spain who were kicked out in 1492. So uh, when they were given the choice whether to leave or not, about half the Jews were told converted. They said, heck with it, we're staying here because we want to keep our house and our cars. Uh, okay, I get that. And then the other half left Spain. And they said they're giving everything up for Yiddishkeit, which is quite a story. That's the Sephardim Torim, right? Giving everything up for Yiddishkeit. Very impressive. Uh, now, of those, most of them went to the Muslim areas, for the most part. 
generally what would they call the Turkish Empire, you know, generally speaking, okay? Now, uh, as I talked a couple weeks ago about the Marishdam and all that, some went to Italy, meaning you went away to places far away from Spain. But if you recall, some didn't do that. They went to the country next door called Portugal. Because the king of Portugal at that time had promised the Jews that if you come into my country, I will not make you convert. And Spain and Portugal are adjacent, and so it wasn't that hard to go away. And I'm sure in their minds, they did not know what you and I know, which is that the Spanish were never going to change their mind for the next 500 years. They thought, as I've said over and over again, it's a temporary, it's a mishigash. Tomorrow, next year, 10 years, the Spanish will change their mind and they'll bring us back in. Um, now, it didn't happen, but that's how they thought. And so the people went to Portugal, obviously, must have thought, well, wait it out over here. And then with X number of years, uh, sooner rather than later, hopefully, the Spanish will invite us back in. Uh, and so these Jews are the ones who went to Portugal, Dafka, in order not to convert. If they wanted to convert, they would have stayed in Spain. Five years after this or so, for certain reasons, the king of Portugal changed his mind, radically turned on a dime. And he says, I changed my mind. You have to all convert now. They said to him, he said, but you promised us that we didn't have to. He said, but that was yesterday. Things have changed and now you have to do it. But we don't believe in all this. It doesn't matter. You have to do it. Even in Spain, they didn't make us convert against our will using physical force. That's what you're doing. He said, that could be, but this is what's happening here. I want to reiterate, reiterate, in 1492, the Jews were not forced to convert to Christianity. They simply were told, if you want to stay Jewish, you have to leave the country, which is a different thing altogether. Okay? Here, the guy was saying, I want each and every one of you now to convert. And he put all kind of pressure on them. He kidnapped their children. He put them in rooms like jails. He fed people salty food and wouldn't give them water unless they converted. Sometimes they just pick, pick, pick people up. And Mamish, by brute force, uh, put them in the baptism and all the rest of it. It happened. So it was like a, like a collective rape, you might say. Theologically speaking. It happened. Okay, so then you had X thousands of Jews who don't believe in the Christianity for the most part. You know, a few of them switched, but um, most of them didn't. So everybody said, it's, it's obvious, it's a non-Sahadi that the only reason they, they did it because their mom was forced. And it's, by the way, a violation of Catholic law, but it happened. So these people became the Portuguese Jews, as they call them. Meaning, I just want to make this clear, this is not reference to the Jews of Portugal who were there before, 14, before 1492, but rather it's a reference to the Jews who came to Portugal in 1492 and then were forcibly converted afterwards. Now, what happened to the other Portuguese Jews? You know, that's a separate issue. They weren't anything clutch of anyway. This group resented being uh, forced to convert for the most part. A couple of them, like I just said before, you know, said, okay, this is what it is. I'm, uh, I'm a guy now. For the most part, they didn't want to do it. Now, for the next 200 years, it's a long time, actually for the next 300 years, excuse me, uh, many of them secretly adhered to Judaism in one way or another. Uh, for the first 40 years, there was no Inquisition, so you could sort of get away with it. But once there's an Inquisition, which is that the cops are watching you, there's an organized snitch system that's highly uh, developed. You're going to be screwed, you know, you're going to be found out. So after 1536, so from 1536 to approximately uh, 1800 or you know something like that, uh, it was a reign of terror. If you're Jewish and you're from the descended from these people that I'm talking about, these Portuguese Jews, 
Here what they call the Anusim, Anus, the ones who were forced to convert. Uh, the Goyim call them Moranos, it's like the N-word. Uh, they call themselves sometimes New Christians, okay? Or they call themselves Portuguese, okay? Now, what do you do if you want to stay Jewish? In one, one possibility is take your chances, secretly practice Judaism. Not that they had any idea what Judaism is. After a generation or two goes by, you can never, there's no learning, there's no Hebrew books, no anything. It's just, you know, vague memories of what they were told by their bubbies and great bubbies and all the rest of it. So you can imagine what their Judaism consisted of. I remember Cecil Roth writes about them making a Carmen Pesach secretly. Because all they had is the Chumash, the Bible in, in, in Spanish and Portuguese. You read the Old Testament. And it says a holiday called Pesach where you shake the animal, you know. How they supposed to know? Never heard of the Gemara and all the rest of it. Again, it's not their fault. They're Oynes, Anusib. I'm just telling you the way it was. Now, this, the Portuguese and the Spanish were quite aware that uh, these groups existed, and they watched them like a hawk. And many were caught one way or the other and were burned at the stake. Okay, keep that in mind. Now, our hero, Menashe ben Israel, whose real name was something else, Diego Suero, something like that, uh, you can't tell what the names are because when they converted, often forcibly, they were given Gaisha names. You get it? A lot of these Sephardic names, like Akashta and all the others, are actually aristocratic names. So when this Jew converted, which is a big deal in Catholicism, the noble family of the Kashtas, you know, said it, it's like our, we're the patrons, you know, like the godfather. And that's a big covet by the Catholics, and therefore the Jewish guy took the name the Kashta, Kashta, whatever. Or a lot of these other, Abudiente, whatever, all these, you know, Caravaggio, all these uh, Portuguese names. Shine. Now, in our case, one of the things that happened was that if you are um, Jewish by background, even though now you're Catholic, and you're practicing anything Jewish, uh, you might want to move to a small town somewhere where people don't know you so well. Uh, it's not clear to me, but there are different nusachs of where our hero was born. Some say born in Lisbon. Some say born in one of the islands belonging to Portugal. It's Portugal had an empire around the world. You know that or you don't know that Brazil was uh, belonged to Portugal, for example. And uh, whole chunks of Africa until rather recently, you know, Angola, Mozambique, and Macau and places like that in Asia. So uh, if you move, hopefully, to one of these smaller places, like the island of Madeira, we're told, that may be where his family went to. But one thing is clear. the or, This Inquisition was a very good system, and they did find you out sooner or later. And uh, therefore, you always <laughs> All the things that you see in the Torah literally came true. And if you don't believe me, read the Abarbanel. He lived through this time, and that's how he interprets these psukim, both here and in the book of Daniel. Take a look, it's very interesting. Now, it's obvious Abarbanel was a Spanish Jew, and, you know, he was in pain at the Inquisition, but I'm telling you, that's how he interprets the psukim, and it fits very well. Okay? It's like a reign of terror. Now, in our case, uh, he was born in 1604 and he died in 1657, so he was young. When he was born in 1604, it's 100 years or so after the forced conversions. His family was being watched. Obviously, somebody somewhere must have snitched. You get it? And that's always the problem. If you know any other Jews, you like exposing yourself because suppose, let's say 
I'm just making this up. Let's say my family was the Moranos, cats, and we're very quiet and we keep our mouth shut. But I also know Friedman family. I'm just making it up. And one of the Friedman's cousins gets uh, caught by the Inquisition. Well, the cousin will then tell about the Freemans, the Freemans will then tell about the Katzes, and I'm dead. You see what I'm saying? You know, it's a chain. If you know any other Jews, and you ever practice anything with them, so it's a reign of terror. Now, in our case, uh, this family, I think the name was Suero, something like that, which is a Kaisha po uh, Portuguese name. It's not the real name. So, uh, they were in danger of being found out, and therefore they ran away, they escaped ahead of the Inquisition. This wasn't Pushit, because usually Inquisition was watching the ships, and you're not supposed to, you know, run away and all that. Uh, if you know the exact history of the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, there were times when the going was easier, when they didn't watch so closely, and other times where they did watch so closely. It's a complicated subject. If you're at all interested in this, you want a basic information, just get the uh, Cecil Roth book, History of Muranos, which he wrote in 1932. Uh, it's a lot of day, but it's it's fine for the basic facts. It's very good, and I recommend everybody read if if this subject interests you whatsoever, and it probably costs two bucks on Amazon, you know, whatever. So uh, there are different times when it's easier to escape, and in our case, this family they must have found that the Inquisition is going to get them. Once they get you, you're doomed. You're going to be burned, and so they got the heck out of there, and they ran away either was from Portugal or from the Portuguese island to France to La Rochelle. La Rochelle was a famous fort held by the Huguenots, the uh, French Protestants. And the French Protestants, believe it or not, some of them were sympathetic to the Jews because, I don't want to get too off the derrick here, but uh, France during that time was also raging a civil war, uh, in the 1500s anyway, between the Protestants and the Catholics. By the time the 1500s was over, like I don't want to go into too many details, by the time 1500s was over, so a truce had been worked out, and certain areas were left for the Protestants. That lasted until Louis the Fourteenth. So for our hero, if it's he's five years old, he's six years old, he's six, sixteen, ten, to the family getting away from the Inquisition. So they ran away to France and they were safe. And then from France, they heard that there's a new community that has been formed of people exactly like themselves in Amsterdam, in uh, in Holland, in the Dutch Republic. And they ran away there to Amsterdam. So here we are in the first decade of the 1600s. This is Mamish when the Dutch Jewry is forming, when, they, when the, uh, the, the Dutch are allowing the creation of a Jewish Kehillah for the first time in Amsterdam, in the capital city. Now, just to dot the I's and cross the T's, the, at that time, Holland, I shouldn't use these words, but I'm using it because that's what you understand. There's a country called the United Provinces of the Netherlands. That's the name. Uh, like in America, we have a country called the United States of America. So there it is, something called the United Provinces of the Netherlands. These are the Dutch. And a bunch of these provinces got together to form and in, in, to make one union, the United Union, to preserve their liberties against Spain. They used to be ruled by Spain, then they had a revolt. And an 80 years war was going on. You hear what I said? From 1560 to 1640. That's a long time. And the Spanish were trying to wipe them out. Because the Spanish were Catholic, the Dutch were Protestant, and um, there was a lot of wars back and forth. Uh, now, at the time I'm speaking about, I, I, I'm always worried about confusing people. Portugal was part of Spain. 
for a short period, because the king of Spain, for a while, Philip II, married the princess from Portugal, and so when there was no king in Portugal, he took over the Gansa business. Okay, So from 1580, I think, to 1640 about, uh, Portugal and Spain were sort of semi-united. The reason I'm mentioning this is because um, if you were a member of a foreign country, how how the Dutch going to let you in? But there was a truce going on at that time. It was a 10-year truce. And so it could happen. So our hero and his family, like other Moranos, were able to run away and go to Amsterdam. And they got off a boat there. And then is a freedom of religion. I mean, they can be Jewish. The Dutch are not particularly nice. However, at that particular moment, there was a Calvinist Protestantism. They're fighting a war of survival against the Spanish. The Spanish wanted to crush them and kill them. Mamish. Uh, they came close a couple times. The Dutch were tough. They, at one point, flooded their own country. Mamish flooded to, to, to drive the Spanish out. You know, the Dutch were tough. And um, they fought like crazy. Because, they, you know, let's put it this way. It was a pekoch nefesh. Like Israel says, aim brera, you know. Their back was against the wall. This is why the Dutch fought. And in that context, they came to realize that the Spanish Jews, or they never called themselves Spanish Jews, because Spain was mamish the enemy. You can't explain to a Dutchman that I'm a Spanish Jew. So they call themselves Portuguese. Get it? We're Portuguese Jews. Oh, Portugal is not so bad as Spain. So these Portuguese Jews, who are Portuguese-speaking and Spanish-speaking, uh, some of them came to, ho- to the United Provinces of the Netherlands, from now on, I'm going to call it Holland, okay? Even though Holland's really the name of one state, one province. There's like six or eight, I forget how many provinces in the United Provinces of Holland. Ah, there I go. In the United Provinces of the Netherlands. But it doesn't matter, you know. Uh, we'll call it Holland. So they came there in Amsterdam, the capital of Holland. And um, this is famous that uh, it's a Protestant country. And so uh, in Protestant countries, the State is supreme over the church in religious matters. You get it? In a Catholic country, there's something called the Vatican. Especially in the old days, the Catholic Church was supreme over the state as far as religious hashkafah is concerned. The state was in charge of civil things. So you've got country like Spain, Portugal, France, Italy, those type of places, right? You know, Austria. So when it comes to politics, it's the king, it's the emperor, whatever. When it comes to religious theological belief, they say like this. The church will tell us what to do. You know, so the church is in charge of the religious, the, the Hashkafa side. But in, so if the church says a Jew cannot live in some country, they can't. Or if a Jew lives here, he has to be degraded and living in a ghetto and subject to all kinds of persecutions, and it becomes an okay, that's what you do. Masha'en Camp is a Protestant country. And that's very important to our story. That religion is important, but at the end of the day, there's no Vatican. If anything, the state, the secular state, organized the church. You follow? The church is subordinate to the state. Who appoints the big bishops and the machers and all the other top officials? It's the rulers of the country. And so, at the end of the day, to use Jer- Jewish language, it's not the rabbi accounts, it's the board of directors. So, the reason I say that is because the Dutch clergy, the Christians, they didn't want any Jews there whatsoever. They're pretty narrow-minded, I get it. Uh, but the Dutch secular people, uh, they say like this, listen, we're a small country, it's hard for us to fight Spain, we're relying on 
having a good economy to pay for all this stuff. And anything else, the economy is a plus. And these Portuguese Jews, most of them came with business skills or other things like that. It wasn't like Hasidim are pouring into the country. They wouldn't allow that. It wasn't like your ugly-looking Ashkenaz Jews. Poor people. They don't like that. These Jews, Portuguese Jews, <coughs> are going like us. Meaning, they this important. They have grown up as going. They've grown up as Catholics. I know they didn't believe it. I'm just saying. So, they're European. Uh, they dress European. They speak not Yiddish or something like that. They speak a European language. Because these Jews were raised in, you know, Portuguese schools and Spanish schools and colleges. Some were highly educated. And they brought skills. And so, as Jews go, they're less Jew-y. You understand? And uh, the only thing is their religion is different. All right, big deal. And so the secular people in charge of the country who are very economically minded, they say to the clergy, you just shut up. We're making the rules over here, and these Jews can come in. Now, by the way, it was a good move, because as a result of this economic way of looking at things, the Dutch Republic, the United Provinces of the Netherlands, had an economy that took off. It was like the number one economy in the world. This is called the golden age of the Dutch Republic, the 1600s, when Holland was amazing, okay? And they, and they built gigantic navies, and they defeated other countries and the fleets, and they, like I said before, they conquered giant empire around the world. Uh, they were tough for a while in the 17th century. And they took over Indonesia, as you call it, the Dutch East Indies. They had Gaelic of South America. You will perhaps recall that New York City was originally New Amsterdam from the Dutch. They were a Kayach. And uh, the Jews were coming into that. And these Sephardic Jews, these uh, Portuguese Jews, who come in knowing nothing about Judaism, but they have enough mysterious nefesh that they're running away from the Inquisition. They want to be Jewish. Okay? They want to be Jewish. They just don't know what it means. And so they're coming here. It's quite a romantic story. And they say, we're, we're giving everything up to be able to come out of the closet. We're coming to Amsterdam, but we have smarts. We have knowledge. We have business skills. We have networks. And we now put it on behalf of the Dutch economy. Why not? And so on this basis that the Portuguese Jews were allowed to come into Amsterdam and to other places in the United Provinces of the Netherlands. And one of these Jews that came in, mom was starting around 1600. I mean, I don't want to go into too many details over here. It was a guy, a robolist, without going into all that. Uh, uh, suffice it to say, in the first 10 years of the 1600s, that's when you start the Jewish community of Amsterdam. And our hero's family is one of them. Now listen to this. Their name was Swero. But when... Now, can you imagine the terror escaping from the Inquisition? I mean, they made it, but just barely. That's the story. So you can make a movie out of this. Israel's stupid. They have all these stupid Israeli movies. Why don't they do some good things from Jewish history? The Moran is actually an interesting sugya. You could do a whole mini-series. You know, this will be on Netflix. Menashe ben Israel, our hero. I'm serious. It'll be quite a... Take it from me. It'll be quite a, quite a series. Now, uh, uh, when he escaped... And they finally said, I guess, you're free. You know, the the, guy, the Inquisition is gone. You can now be Jewish. Your life changes. He said like this, the father of the kids. He said, I feel like, uh, what was he? I feel like Joseph re re returned to his brethren, like Yosef. And he called him, so he changed his name from Swear. He said, my name from now on is Yosef ben Yisrael. Like Yosef Atzadik in our Parsha this week, in Parsha of Egypt. 
Right, the biblical Joseph. Yosef ben Yaakov, or Yosef ben Yisrael. Okay. They changed his name. I'm just trying to show you how emotional it was. And his kids, whatever, a guy's name was Diego or something like that, he said, no, if I'm Joseph, then my two sons are Ephraim and Menashe. Get it? So that's where you get the name Menashe ben Israel, which is not really his name. He's Menashe, and since his father changed the name to Yosef ben Yisrael, so I call myself Menashe ben Yisrael. It's okay with me. And what I mean to say is their very name itself was like a sign of their Jewish hischachas. Get it? Of the tremendous emotionalism associated with it. Now, he's five years old, six, six years old, when he comes to Amsterdam. Uh, he's got an advantage. Uh, and I'll tell you exactly what I mean. Refugees are refugees. Like the ones that came to America, like the Baltimore or anywhere else. For all their life, they're going to speak English, broken English. For all their life, they're going to speak with a bad accent. For all their life, they're never really going to understand the local language and the local customs and all that. It's it's what happens, okay? Uh, imagine Americans moving to Israel. You know, it's what happens. However, they always say like this, the kinder. The children are younger. They'll grow up and they'll hop everything. And that's what happened. So our hero, so this works in several ways. Uh Here's a family. See, I'm, I'm describing a different type of uh, history over here. Here's a family that comes to Amsterdam. The parents obviously say like this, we're going to always live our lives in the Jewish neighborhood. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, I don't know what they did for a living. Probably was in business, a little, uh, you know, schnook or something. And um, you have to understand, I'm trying to convey to you the emotionalism. People get off the boat in Amsterdam and they're looking around and the Jewish community always had someone at the docks to go over and say, are you Jewish? <laughs> yeah, don't worry. You're free now. I'm not from the Inquisition. Ad Rabba. Come with me. I'll show you the Jewish neighborhood. And we'll try to help you. Because we're all from the same boat. Everybody, without exception, in this community was born a guy. Everybody in this community was raised Catholic, just like you were. We're all Anusim. All of us. We're all Moranos and so forth. And so we come to the Jewish neighborhood where it was in Amsterdam. If you, I was there once, so if you can go, it's very pretty. I'm hoping once the corona is over, one of my projects, not the only one, is uh, to do a Jewish history tour in Amsterdam, maybe combined with England or something like that. We're talking about it. Uh, if anybody's interested, you let me know. If I get a group together, we'll do it. Because since I was there, I know I know what it is. Uh, and you go to the Jewish neighborhood, and they say like this, come to the synagogue. This is a Jewish prayer. You say, what's this? This is a Hebrew. You understand? Oh, and you hold it this way. He said, I can't read Hebrew. You're not the only one who can't read Hebrew. Don't worry about it. You know, we with the rabbis translating this into Spanish. I'm serious. You understand? Know a lot of translation had to be done. And so the whole, it's not a few BTs. The whole community itself is Balshuva. The whole community. And therefore, there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know, I don't know, I understand. So just imagine, I'm just trying to share with you. Just imagine if somebody gets off the boat in Amsterdam and they come there and say, this, okay, Lich Benchen is. It's 4.45. What's that? Friday night, you light the candles. Oh, I heard something. I don't know. What exactly you do? Come with me. I'll show you. You Show the woman. You light the candles. You say the bracha. Do it this way. Can I make the sign of the cross? No, we don't do that. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. A lot of them do it anyway, you know. Uh, how do I say the bracha? I'll show you transliterated, you know, baruch atah, you know, like that. And just imagine, by the way, candle lighting is nothing. Imagine when you have to introduce her, tires and Shabbos can't, you know, can't do this, can't do that. 
kosher food, all the rest of it. And, you know, these guys say like this, I know from the Bible you can't eat a pig, but where do you get Basar B'chol from? <laughs> right? You know, where's all this kind of stuff? Tarubas, Malicha, all the rest of it. He said, well, it's in the Gemara. What's the Gemara? Is it Torah Shabbat Peh? What's the Torah Shabbat Peh? There's a thing called Torah Shabbat Peh. I never heard about it. That's because you were in Spain and Portugal. You were cut off from your community. You know, this is the way it goes. Really? Yeah, that's what it is. So what I'm trying to say is this one giant fascinating exercise in re-entry into Judaism or entry into Judaism, encountering your own uh, heritage. And it wasn't what these people necessarily thought. You know, they thought to come to a place where they're living by the Old Testament, you know, or something along those lines. And they discovered there's a whole world called the Torah Shalapah, let alone the Shulchan Aruch, and the Halachic tradition, and the Medrash, and radically different ways of reading the Bible, obviously, and so on and so forth. Now, what's interesting is, obviously some people say like this, this is not what I had in mind. This Judaism is something totally different than I imagined. I'm out of here. person might go somewhere else. might even go back to Portugal, believe it or not. <laughs> Become a guy. I mean, all kinds of things happen. But Ruba de Ruba, most Jews say like this. This is all new to me. And uh, it does seem to be weird. But I realize that's because I was spiritually raped. If this is what it is, I'm willing to change the best of my ability. So I will try from now on, even though... It's all strange to me. I'll try from now on to be a Jew, get tefillin, talish, Shabbos, kashras, tars mishpacha, the whole nine yards. It's not exactly the way I imagined it. You know, I never heard of a Pesach Seder, and so on and so forth. Kalvachom, I never heard of Isser Chametz Bamasho. But okay, it's I, I recognize that I am the inferior one. So it's like Baal Shuvah is everywhere. You see, it's a new learning experience, and the person here says like this. I understand I'm a babe in the woods and I'm just taking all this on in faith. Or they don't. Now some people, a few people, like Spinoza, said, this is crazy. I was out of here. Uh, he was from that group also. But most Jews said, well, you have books about this. Most Jews said, you know, uh, I am a uh, simple learner and I, I want to be uh, taught Judaism. I, I realize I don't know anything. Now, so it's, it's a very interesting plunge of faith, like Kierkegaard said, you know, Leap of faith. And so our hero and his family was the mom's part of this. Okay? And the parents said right away that this six-year-old son of us has a good feast of the Balkishran. And therefore, they, we want him to have what we didn't have, which is, he's starting six years old, a good Jewish education, obviously also a good secular education, because they're all Portuguese Jews who were secularly educated, Christian educated even. And uh, you can't tell a Portuguese Jew that all Imudichol is baloney, you know, yeshivish, because they know it's not true. <laughs> See? And so the most you can say is, Tarm Derecherz, Taramata. And our hero will become a, a paragon, let's say, of a Taramata. I, I, I would say, you know what I'm saying? A paragon of Taramata. Now, uh, for this reason. And so here I have a boy uh, in, whew, in um, Amsterdam, in, from 1610, let's say, to 1620, or from the age of, you know, 16, the, it, young years and teen years. And uh, he, the community knew, because they're, they're just starting this time, that they don't know anything, and they imported Rabbonim, a few, just like themselves, Sephardic rabbis, usually from Venice. Uh, they're the coming Talmud Chachamim, and uh, a few, 
and their job is to be different. That's <laughs> quite an interesting uh, rabbinate. You're not coming like somewhere else to an existing kehoa. You're starting the kehoa, and these your balabatim have to be taught from the bottom up. But you hope that the kids will have a regular education from the start. And that's what Menashe Ben Israel does. He's in the community cheder, or it wasn't a cheder, because that's a backwards type of way of learning, they would think. He's in something called a day school. Uh, <clears throat> with And just like you know from the non-Jewish world, you have the first grade, the second grade, the third grade, you have tests and all the rest of it. So the Limudi Kosher also run that way. There's a very famous, it's very well known, that the son of the Shlo, I think it was, visited Amsterdam, that he was Ashkenazi Jew, used to the Ashkenazi cheder system, which is hop plop, you know, you learn whatever you learn, and then you go weiter, uh, you know, the old formless, uh, systemless uh, way of education, you learn olive base, and then uh, once you learn to read, you learn a little chumash, and then you start learning Gemara, and if you have the he- head for it, you learn Tosus, and uh, you're expected somewhere along the line to pick up all this stuff on your own, which many did. <laughs> Uh, as a, so when he visited Amsterdam, he writes with astonishment. It's in the it's often quoted in the history books. He said, "Wow, in Amsterdam they have a school. It's got different grades. It's got tests. It's unbelievable, you know." And they too, in the uh, you know uh, organized fashion, first comes Diktuk, then comes Tanakh, you know, whole Chumash, the whole Tanakh, then comes Mishnayis, then comes Gemara. You know, like the Maral talks about. Maral is a temp- contemporary of this time. More or less, and uh, that's where he our hero learned. So he didn't go to regular what you and I would call yeshiva, okay? Not yeshivish. Remember, I just did Jonathan Sachs uh, a parallel. It's not the same thing though. Uh, not yeshivish, but in the other hand, he learned his way. And by the way, once he finished all mishnayos, then he learned whole shas, you know, like that. For the few that stayed the whole course, and he did. And so here you have somebody who is uh, in a fascinating time in a community that's growing every week because other Moranos are escaping to Amsterdam all the time. And uh, by the way, the Inquisition has spies there, so you got to watch what you say. Uh, not, not that you're in danger in Amsterdam, but you might out somebody back in Portugal and they could get burned, you know? Um, I'll tell you again, it'd be a great movie. And uh, he grows up over there and he's a Balkishan, he's very good probably the best student in that school. And so eventually, you figure the guy's 15, 18 years old. So I remember his Rebbe died and this and that and the other. And uh, at the same time that this is happening, he's also getting a very good secular education. I don't know exactly how, but they obviously had tutors of some sort or another. Now, he never went to college, but he did get the equivalent of a college education. And he himself was a big intellectual. And so you have something most unique, not totally unique, but most unique, which is somebody, well, in Italy you had this also, uh, which is somebody who has a thorough Torah education of a certain sort, of a certain sort, uh, you know, in the morale kind of way. And then you have someone with a um, secular education. I will throw in one more piece. And that is, Kabbalah was part of the curriculum. If you know anything about the Jews in Amsterdam, uh, the first rabbi, Herrera, and some other people, were major Kabbalists of a certain variety. It's called Bishral uh, Saruk, not the Chaim Vital. And the Kabbalah is part of the world at that time. So it's a most unusual kind of education. And our hero uh, already, like when he, I think, if I remember correctly, when he's already 15 or 16 years old, already started giving uh, sermons. 
So he was a natural good uh, a darshaner. In Spanish, what's the point of giving Yiddish sermon in Amsterdam? Nobody speaks Yiddish. What's the point of giving a Hebrew sermon? Nobody speaks Hebrew. They can't read. It's the Spanish. It's Portuguese. Get it? And one of the things he has, he has an excellent liberal arts education, which therefore means in those days that he learns 10 languages, maybe 12, which he can speak well. Uh, obviously Spanish and Portuguese, and obviously Latin and Greek, but also English, Dutch, um, I don't know, German, and a couple other languages as well, which means he ain't your typical rabbi of the 17th century. Okay? It's also, I would say, he's a voracious reader anyway, and by the time he hits his uh, 20s, so he has his full education, the problem then becomes like this, Parnosa, because the community is let, run by, constituted, and led by businessmen. The type of Jew that's going to come and be permitted in, for the most part, are these Sephardic merchants. Uh, they ran away from Portugal, but like I say, they bring the whole business network with them. It's the type of guy that you would want to bring in as a refugee, because this refugee is going to bring in a ton of money and a lot of business and employment opportunities. That's what they did. Now, a businessman is usually not someone who has any respect or understanding of intellectual matters. Uh, that's not how they're built. The, is, that's not how they got to be good businessmen. There is exceptions, but generally. And in our case, um, the reason the Dutch were good to them to the degree that they were was because they bring their business smarts. So the community was run by a whole bunch of these uh, well-to-do guys. And being that they come from a Spanish-Portuguese background, so it's a dictatorship of the, of the rich Balabatim, what they call the Adhunta. The Kahila is formed, the Alhama, and they run with the Constitution. The Constitution says like this, the Balabatim, the board of directors is in charge, not the rabbi. The rabbi is an employee. Right, can be fired at will. So Rav in Amsterdam is not a Pasha thing at all. And uh, you know, doesn't have the real power to the board of directors has the power. Uh, totally. And they and and it's very repressive. They issue all kinds of rules and tax self taxation rules. And if you don't listen, you get penalized. Either you're excommunicated or you're denied burial rights or synagogue rights. Or you know, in other words, it's very much coercive, except that they didn't have legal coercive power. The Dutch didn't give them that. But within the community they put a lot of pressure. That's why Spinoza left. Now in our case, we have someone who's not a businessman. Uh, he could have gone into business, but that's not the road he took. He took the road of Torah. But that's very unusual. Very few of these Portuguese refugees actually intend to become Talmudic Chacham serious. And if you do, how exactly do you make a living? Now, if this would have been an enlightened set of Balabatin, they would have said, oh, we have among us, sorry, from our own ranks. A young local boy who's done well. Uh, and therefore, let's bankroll him. But that's not how they were. They were a bunch of tight-fisted Jews. And they would give money for overseas projects, support yeshivas in Israel and things like that, but not for local. And this was the curse of the life of Menashe in Israel. So he lived to be 54, I think. So for the 30, 35 years of his adult life, uh, he's like Rodney Dangerfield. You don't get no respect. Now... Uh, which is kind of ironic, as we'll see as the time goes on. So what do you do? So by the time he's in early 20s, he gets married. Hey, make a living. Now, there were, I think, three, if I remember correctly, there were like three shoals, which eventually combined into one. So he was taken to be the rabbi, the chazan of one of those shoals. You lead the services, you give drushes, 
Well, things like that, but you're totally under the, the thumb, the local board of directors. These are shows with 20, 30, 40, 50 people. It's not, not what you think. Uh, later, when they combined into one, it was bigger, but in his time, most of his life wasn't like that. So how exactly are you going to uh, you know, make this work? How are you going to make this work? So they're looking for a partner. You can't make it as a raw, you say, okay? As a, as most of it is what we call say, a part-time job. How you make it with parents? The guy's got a family. And so the answer is that he met a uh, printing press. Okay? Uh, nothing wrong with that. You find a technology. In the 1600s, it's still a new, relatively new technology. Make a Hebrew printing press. Get it? Or a Jewish printing press. And uh, and he'll be the one to run it. Uh, which means literally, you know, you get the uh, letters and you get all the things that come from a printing press. And the idea is twofold, or maybe even threefold. First of all, you'll produce locally the books for the Kehillah. Like I told you, they need Sidurim, they need Machsers, they need Haggadahs, uh, with Spanish translation or Portuguese translation. So he's the guy who knows all the languages, he can do that. So he produces all that kind of stuff. Um, they also need, you know, other books about Judaism. He'll publish it. You get it? He tried his best to make a living from this by publishing things that would sell well and would be of great use. And when he's uh, in, in his 20s, when this business started, I forget who bankrolled him. Somebody gave him the money as an investment, you know. That's what he did for the rest of his life. So he is a rabbi, but like you see in America, it's a part-time job, you see. And later on, when he was like 40, uh, about 20 years later, so two rich guys came to Amsterdam and they bankrolled him to be a, a Rosh Yeshiva. It's not what you imagine, uh, you know, to, to teach boys. Again, it was a part-time job. So he's a classic uh, rabbi of the variety that they have three or four or five part-time jobs. That's what he had to be, okay? Um, had he lived in another time in another place, things would have turned out different, but that's how he lived his life. Now, uh, he knew a Velt, and... He knows this community because they're flesh of his flesh and blood. blood. He, he's got relatives there. His wife is also from the community. Uh, these are his people. And he realizes uh, in his 20s that what he wants to do is uh, somehow turn this publishing uh, house into a success in every sense of the word, not only financial. And so how do you publish a book that everybody can use? And he published a book when he was 28 which is Givaldic. It's one of my favorite books uh, in Spanish. And what it is is, listen closely, uh, it goes through all the questions in Tanakh. He first published the Chumash. Anytime you have a question in the Chumash, like how come it says this over, how come it says in one place Autumn lived this long and somewhere else Autumn lived that long? Or how come one place it sounds this way and other places it sounds that way? Or how come it says a Pasuk here and in Mishle it sounds the opposite? Uh, all these type of questions, which is straightforward reading of the Bible, raises in people's minds. You understand? Uh, which reflected, among other things, questions that his own Balabatim were asking him. There's nothing wrong with that. A person gets off the boat, now he wants to be Jewish. He said, now I'm trying to understand the Jewish religion. I'm reading the Old Testament. Uh, now I'm exposed to Jewish teachings if they're there. And Rabbi, I want to have a question. How come Yosef did this and, you know, someone else did that? Let me just... Open here, see if I have an example 
one, it, it, it's old-fashioned writing, but example, let's see from this parsha, which would be by Yeshua. I don't know if it's in here or not, but let's say it was. Uh, ooh, let's, uh, I will bring you out of Egypt. Okay. Uh, it says, well, it's already in Vayigash, but just one example, it doesn't matter. It's a, on the one hand, it says, I'll bring you out, uh, uh, up again from Egypt. And then it says that Jacob died in Egypt. So if God promised him, Anochi Alcha Gamalo, I'll take you out of Egypt. The partial reading of that is, you'll go to Egypt and you'll come back. And we all know Jacob did not come back alive. Okay? So how was the Lord's promise to Jacob fulfilled? They'll bring him from Egypt when he died here. Let's take four questions. There are hundreds of these, okay, in the Chumash. And what he does is conciliate, conciliador. He conciliates, means he forenfered every question. How does he do that? Uh, by giving you a digest of what everybody said on the subject up to his time. So it's the best tutor book out. It's one of the best. So just to give you one example, I'm just going to read this. It's not It's not a, a, a long piece. I'll just read it. How was the Lord's promise to Jacob fulfilled that it would bring him up from Egypt when Jacob died there? And the answer is, according to Rashi, the promise of the Lord that he would bring him up was his corpse, which would be carried for internment to the sepulchre of his fathers of Hebron. All right, that's one way. See, they don't read Rashi. You understand? They don't know this. But Rabbi Levi ben Gershon holds the Ralbag that the promise was fulfilled in his children who God delivered uh, from the Egyptian bondage. So it's Anochi Alcha Gamalo. It means Yaakov's descendants. These two interpretations are adopted by Rabbeinu Bechaya and Don Isaac of Barbanel, adding that the Holy Land being a superior and most sacred portion of the earth, that's why he says Alcha Gamalo, the double language over there, signifies his course. His corpse will be brought to the sepulchre of his fathers and his soul to a world of sublime regions where he would enjoy everlasting bliss. So Alcha means I'll take your, your goof to Eretz Yisrael. And Gamalo, I'll take to Gan Eden and Shemaim. That's one example. Now, what do I mean? He is unbelievably erudite. This is, to my mind, the characteristic of the writings of Menashe and Israel. He's not an original uh, thinker, but he knows everything, and it's like a walking encyclopedia. And he published this book, which was a smashing success, uh, because it's very good for the BTs, meaning when people say, I don't, I'm reading the Chumash, I have questions. Here he'll give you all the answers. Now, you may not like the answer, okay? That's okay. But at least you know what have the Jewish authorities said up to the year 1632 when it was published. And if it's a Rishon, if it's a Medrash, it's a Chazal, it could be Yerushalmi, it could be in the Zohar, it could be anything. You know what I'm saying? By the way, I'm not done. He also, being who he was, he brings any Geisha guy. So, obviously, Josephus knows guys. But it could also be in the New Testament. It could be the Church Fathers. It could be Aristotle, Plato, uh, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Socrates, Hippocrates, any of these guys. Because he said like this. I'll bring you whatever, what anybody said on the subject, if it's a good vart. Uh, inspired by the example of the Barbanel. That's what the Barbanel does. He brings all the guy also. And he said, you know, chase truth wherever you see it. And so the result is that he published a book in Spanish, and uh, it was very good. Uh, now, eventually, he was published in many languages, not in Hebrew. It's always surprised me, not in Hebrew. And later in life, he did Tanakh also. So, in other words, you have Turnabim McSubin. And I'm telling you this because probably many of you don't know this exists. This is a fantastic cheater book, uh, in my opinion. 
and was translated to English in Queen Victoria's time, you know, way back then, by a Sephardi guy in uh, London. Uh, so it's got that 19th century uh, English type translation, which is not Shakespeare. It's not that hard. And he himself, the author, wrote in the sixth in the in the 17th century. I mean, so it's the old style of writing. But having said that, anybody can understand it, in my opinion. It would be interesting if someone would do a new translation with modern English. This would have been an R.E. Kaplan-type project, because in here, he is an R.E. Kaplan-type guy, sharing with you the wealth of Jewish sources. In addition to what I just said, he's got all the Kabbalah stuff. It's unbelievable. From Jikatilla, from, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? These Kabbalistic books from the, uh, you know, from the 1300, 1500, 1600s. It's incredible, you understand? Up to his time, you know. So it's from Chaim Betal, from Israel Struth. It's from uh, the, the Herrera. Uh, yeah, but before that also, you know, uh, Abu Lafia. It's, it's incredible, okay? Incredible. Now, what you therefore have is an encyclopedia of Vart. Um, so if you ever, and he's comprehensive. And so if you have any question on the Tanakh, uh, if it's a question that he dealt with, which has to do with something strange or seeming a contradiction in one place in Tanakh and another, you'll get all the stuff from him. That's why I say that this is a book that anybody's a teacher or rabbi or something like that should get. And if you get it, you'll, you won't be sorry. It's called The Conciliator, A Re Re Reconcilement of Apparent Contradictions in Holy Scripture. It's online. What I, what I mean is somebody actually, the text is online. So if you Google conciliator Menashev in Israel, you can get the you know if you're if you're like that. I'm a book person, but you know if you want to read it like that, you can read the guns of business over there. And believe you me, if you go week by week, I'm not getting paid to do this. If you read week by week, you become quite uh, educated. Now I, when I originally read this, I was blown away. How does he know so much? Over the course of time, I see he copied a lot from the Barbanel, a lot from Redak. Nothing wrong with that. The Barbanel, as I mentioned in my other podcast is really excellent in the sense that he often summarizes what all the people said before him up to his time, and he's like really excellent at that. Dredak does that sometimes. And so our hero you know, simply lives out of them. There's nothing wrong with that. Like he says, he's collecting from all the different sources. So, for example, if you want to know, I don't know, why was it, uh, why was it uh, wrong to ask for a king in the time of Shmuel when the Torah says, Som Tosim Lechamelch? Well, the Barbanel Leos lists all the five ten opinions, and so so eight opinions actually, and so so does he. He more or less copies it out. Um, what's the story of the Witch of Endor? You know, did she really raise the Samuel? He just copies straight out of the uh, the, the Radat. Uh, you know, uh, all the different opinions, five, six, seven opinions. Okay, what do you care? You know, what do you care? If you really want to be a scholar, you after you read it in him, go look it up in the uh, in, in the Barbanel Adraba. That's good. Or if he quotes you, he got you shalmies in, he's got everything. Uh, it's really quite a interesting. Now, what I'm trying to say is this. He published this when he was 20 years old. The Jews liked it. The Balabatim were too dumb to hop that they have like something big on here. I'm talking about the, the Richie Riches, uh, which is often the case. The Goyim, it was a smash hit in the Republic of Letters. There used to be, in those years... Uh, in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, a phenomenon where uh, individuals, I've mentioned this before, you can go and Google it, Republic of Letters. 
where the scholars in different countries in Europe knew about each other, corresponded with each other, and had the beginnings of an international Western culture. And so I'm talking about Christians. And he published a book that could be read by anybody because it's in Spanish. You understand? And uh, later it was translated Latin. So, uh, wow, this guy's got a ton of stuff. And we ourselves didn't know about all the Jewish wisdom. You get it? Now, either the individual Christian reader might say, I like this shot, I don't like this shot. But he's putting at your disposal a belt of stuff out there. And that gave him entree. This is where the Jonathan Sachs part comes in to the wider world, because people were astonished that a young guy like this, who wasn't even 30 years old, can put out all this kind of information. And uh, the guy's quite a scholar. He's a rabbi in Amsterdam. He dressed like a modern Dutch guy did at that time. So he looks normal. And he's a from Jew, he's a rabbi. But obviously, he's not some narrow-minded rabbi who doesn't know better. Uh, he knows what's out there. He clearly knows Christianity because he's quoting from the New Testament and, all, and the church fathers, all this kind of stuff. If he wants to be Jewish, Avil P. King, there must be something in Judaism. Get it? And he has letters from Christians who say like this, you know, I respect you. I'm going to live my life as a Christian. I understand you're going to live your life as a Jew. Uh, clearly, you're a smart cookie. Uh, but I see that you're a truth seeker. And, uh, you know, I respect you. For it. This doesn't happen in the 17th century. This is the Jonathan Sachs part. The scholars in Germany... In Holland, of course, and in France and England, all over the place, Italy, they became his correspondents. They wrote with him back and forth. He was smart enough to realize that he wants to build up his name, the Toelis Hayahudim. You get it? It's like the Rambam. If you are held in high regard by the Christians, this will be help Jews altogether. Uh, and indeed, it's always surprised me because since the Balabatim and his own community were very conscious what the guy around them thought, you would have thought they would have uh, valued a guy like him, uh, you know, as I say, as a kind of a Jonathan Sachs type figure. But they didn't. They were just, a, you know, a narrow-minded businessman. And so he spent the rest of his career in his 20s, in his 30s, in his 40s, um, along these lines, you know, running the show, uh, you know, running, giving the, the, the shirim and the yeshiva, uh, not being able to make a, a living with either of those, uh, publishing books. Now, I remember he published a, 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 a cute thing on the Medish Rabba, you know, like a, 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 a key, a chain, you know what I mean, like an index, and that sort of thing. And he liked index sort of things. And he later wrote um, books, what I call his R.E.A. Kaplan books, which were meant to, 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 to service the BT community. Uh, and again, just before I did this podcast, I just went online for the heck of it. A lot of it's online there. So he has something, for example, called Teosor dos Dinim, uh, a treasury of Dinim. It's in Spanish. Um, I think it's Spanish or Portuguese. It might be Portuguese. And I can't tell the difference. It's online. It's photoed. Uh, and Teosor dos Dinim, treasury of Dinim. And I see what it is. It's um, in, like I say, in English letters, it's in, in Spanish. And uh, it goes by A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, alphabetically using the English alphabet. And in the English alphabet, uh, you can find what you want. Uh, let's put it this way. If you're interested in Shabbat, go to S. <laughs> you follow? Go to S. If you're interested in Hanukkah, Hanukkah, go to H. So it's meant for the 
Now I'm from Balabas. I'm looking now at the page Tabuda. It's, it's it's Portuguese, and uh, the you know the tablet, the, the you know what I mean, the table of contents. And under H, he's got Hala, Hala, and he's got Obrigatio de Tefrafe, the obligation to take Hala. He's on page four ninety four. Then he's got Hanukkah, uh, Celebrate, uh, Kislev, and some stuff about Hanukkah. Then he has Amida. I'm not sure what that means, but I assume it means. Because he's a Portuguese Jew, so it's like Amida with an Ayan, you know, the, the Shimon Esrei, the Amida, so it's with an H. Then it's got Arvit, it must be Marev, Ben Soens, it's with Benching, Hazan, and Homer. What the heck is Homer? I have no idea. Oh, it must be the experience of Homer. See? Uh, that kind of thing. And uh, that really brings out uh, the idea of this one I mean by Arya Kaplan. It's meant for popular Judaism in the very best sense of the word. You go through his book, and you know the ABCs of Judaism? So that a person who got off the boat is now wants to live a from Jewish life. I repeat, a from Jewish life. But will never learn Hebrew and can't understand this kind of stuff. But, you know, from him, you'll have an English book, or in this case, a Portuguese book, that will explain the Judaism for you, um, I'll use this terminology, in the best art scroll style. You follow? So everything you did, Lashem Shemayim. And uh, wait a minute. Let me uh, just stop this. I have to turn this over. Hold on for a second. Okay, let me pick up from here. Uh, well, I was talking about the uh, conciliator that he did, um, which has all these uh, topics. Like I said before, go online, you'll see it yourself. Uh, he ended up uh, composing a bunch of other books, um, but usually in Spanish. And uh, he has a book, I remember, about Taras uh, Mishpacha in Portuguese, uh, which he dedicates to the, uh, like you say, the Women's Committee of the Mikvah. Um, these are all, you know, very practical. Let's put it that way. You know, later, I remember in the early 20th century when some of these uh, conversos, Moranos, were discovered in mountains in, in uh, Portugal, and there was a tshuva movement to return to Judaism on the part of these uh, Marana families, the guy Boris Basta, Captain Basta, whatever his name was, uh, they discovered Judaism in the 20th century, 1917, and they didn't know anything about Yiddishkeit, and they reprinted the old books of uh, Menashe and Israel, because even though it was a little old-fashioned Portuguese, but everybody could understand it, and it's a wonderful book to understand Judaism. You understand? What can I say? Like a kid's art? Is that the right word? Something along those lines. Uh, and uh, Hebrew, I think he only published one book. I, I bought it years ago because of the kudos. Uh, called Nishmas Chaim, uh, which he calls Drushim Yikarim Beniskavim Al Inyan Hanishama Tahoro Vachashuba Chatsub Mitachas Kisi Akoab. I think people were wondering uh, uh, about. Uh, let, let me explain this way. If you're a uh, Murano escaping to Amsterdam, like a Spinoza type, you might say like this. Uh, in school, back in Catholic Portugal, I was taught that Judaism is baloney. At home, secretly, I was taught Christianity is baloney. Maybe they're both right, and all religion is baloney. You see? And how do I know that maybe all this world is all there is to it, a materialistic view of the universe? And uh, he's addressing that. He has Chakiris, Gedos, Sheilas, Atsumas, Minyan, Aruchos are their uh, uh, spirits. Be'ibur, Gilgal, Shamas is their uh, reincarnation. Gilgal, and uh, he argues in favor of all this stuff. And I don't know, like I said before, if you can read Hebrew, 
it's kind of interesting. It's old-fashioned, and it's uh, written in the uh, uh, argumentative way, you know, with intellectual arguments. But uh, it's an old fa- It's actually very good. I was told that the Vilna Gaon liked it. I don't know if I, I, I don't remember where I heard that, if it's true or not. Uh, I imagine if that were true, they'd probably place that out all over every safer, because then they would want to, you know, um, get people to buy it. But it's around. Nishmas Chaim Menukad, Lachacham Agadol Menashem in Israel. I think that's his uh, main book on uh, there. And I remember, he, believe it or not, he has all these stories about ghosts and dibbooks and things like na- nature, uh, because he's reporting what he heard. He didn't see it, he's reporting what he heard. And, uh, we got a bunch of other books as well. Now, the trouble is, as I said before, Parnosa never worked out for him. Uh, the Balabatim who were in charge, these guys were um, multi-millionaires, uh, you know, I mean, hugely wealthy. And even though our hero was like having fans in the Gaisha world, I mean, the Queen of, of Sweden wrote to him back and forth. She had all kind of questions in Amuna. Queen, Queen Christina, who was the famous queen of Sweden, uh, the daughter of Gustavus Adolphus, the Protestant hero. She later converted to Christianity. A very famous person. And uh, these businessmen were doing business with her, but they weren't impressed by the fact that the rabbi knows anything. I can only uh, surmise that he must have been personally like a turn. He must not have been a charmer. You know what I'm saying? You know, you have to have that personality, you know, how to shoot the bull with the ball. About him, I guess, I don't know. It didn't seem to work out. And therefore, all during his 30s and his 40s, He's always looking, you know, maybe move to America because the Dutch had colonies in America and maybe some other idea. It never kind of worked out for him. That's the tragedy. Should have been that some rich guy just bankrolled him and the heck with him, do your thing. And then he really would have been Jonathan Sachs in a big way because the Geisha world respected him. You see? And I can't think of any other Jewish figure, certainly no rabbi, that the Geisha world actually respected. But they did so because his writings were mostly in Spanish and, and Dutch and uh, Latin, which is the language of the learned. And uh, he clearly knew everything, you understand? Uh, I can't get across uh, well enough that, you know, most of the Christians looked at Jews like, the reason they're Jewish because they don't know better. You understand? They're very narrow-minded. It's culturally insular. All they were raised up was the Talmud. You know, it's like very, what's the right word? You know, very Lakewood. That's all they know. And therefore, they... This, other things in the world, they have no idea what's going on in the rest of the world. This guy's not like that. So if he wants to be a front Jew anyway, it's not like he does know better. He knows better enough. If he can't, he wants to be Jewish. Shema Amino, there must be something to Judaism. We wouldn't have suspected it. But look at that. The guy wants to be Jewish. So this itself gave a chizik and a respect to Judaism. And uh, you know who was also interested in him? The Kabbalists. There were a lot of, believe it or not, there were a lot of Christian Kabbalists. Because in their mind, they thought the Zohar and these other places have references to Yashka and things like that. There was a big movement once upon a time. And uh, believe it, and boy, he, he can uh, talk with them in learning because he knows all the Kabbalistic books and he's Jewish. He understands obviously better than they do. So he's the most unusual person. Now, uh, as I said, uh, he got no respect. And eventually his shul merged with other shuls and he was canned. You understand? You know, if it's three shuls, and become one, what happens to two of the rabbis? You know, So one rabbi, by the way, they really dissed him. One rabbi got to be the rabbi of the whole United Synagogue of Three Schultz. Another one was put like on the basin, and he was just fired or something like that, right? So uh, I remember the whole story. He made like a strike, and they fired him twice. If you want all the 
uh, if you're interested in him, beyond what I'm speaking about today, there's a famous biography of him, a classic one by uh, Cecil Roth back in the 1930s. There's a very recent one, uh, by Professor Nadler, I remember, Menashe ben Israel on his world, you know, things are brought up to date. If this is something that interests you, uh, anyhow, if if this is all he was, which is not bad at all, that would have been impressive enough. No, is he just being an interesting figure? However, um, later in life, now he didn't live long, but later in his life, he died at 54. So uh, uh, it came to the 1640s. Now, what's about 1640s? It's England. What do you mean England? England was a country that's always had a king, you know, for a thousand years. And the kings didn't like Jews. Derek Klaal. And uh, it was a king, Edward I, the famous Edward Longshanks from the movies, who uh, kicked the Jews out in 1290. Um, and the kings were Catholic and very bigoted. And ain't no way they'll allow any Jews, anyone who, who admits that he's Jewish, to be in England. Okay, fine. Now, by the way, Parliament never passed a law kicking the Jews out. The king did. That actually made a big nafkamina. You'll see in a minute, I hope. Uh, and so England, as it was, uh, is not going to be one of those countries that lets any Jews in. Okay? Just keep that in mind. Hold on for a second. So we're in the 16th fort. Uh, the kings of England, like I said before, were uh, Catholic, or even when, like, Henry VIII, they started the Church of England, but very bigoted. Okay. Uh, so we no room for Jews. However, um, and when this, the Tudor dynasty died out in the late, what was it, 1500s? She, Queen Elizabeth, I think, died in 1601, 1602. So the Stuart also came after him with like that, Charles, James I, King James Bible, and Charles I. But Charles I was such an idiot, unbelievably stupid, that in the 1600s he provoked a rebellion, uh, which is unusual in England, and led to a war against Parliament. And this is called the English Civil War of the 1640s. And uh, Charles thought he would win because he had the uh, royal army and all that. But the parliament uh, produced forth Oliver Cromwell, a farmer, uh, you know, a, a local landowner, a small guy, who turned out to be a military genius. Oliver Cromwell is one of the great generals of history. He never went to West Point or anything like that. That's unnatural, you understand? And Oliver Cromwell... Uh, reorganized his own army in his own way, called the New Model Army. And uh, he crushed the, the forces of the king. And eventually they killed the king in 1649. Chopped off his head. So, this is very unusual. And a lot of wars involved, now I'm not giving you all the details. Suffice it to say that Oliver Cromwell, every time he had a battle, he won. Uh, he's quite a guy. And then he took over as the dictator of England for about 10 years. It wasn't called the dictator, it was called the Lord Protector or something like that. But this is the only time in English history when it wasn't a king. Uh, so Cromwell was m not exactly, but something like a king. Although he would say like this, I'm not a king. God alone is the king. Because Cromwell was a Puritan. They hear what you call in England the nonconformists, which means the Protestants are not the Church of England. And they were very much into reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament. They're fascinated with the Old Testament. And what I'm trying to get is like this. Uh, as a result of the English Civil War, all control over religious thought fell apart, and everybody's competing for a thousand different types of Christianity. A thousand different types of Christianity. This group and that group. Cromwell was one, but there are many, many, many others. And all kind of uh, strange and whatever type of groups out there, including Philo-Semitic, <laughs> right? I didn't say anti-Semitic. 
There are all kind of Protestant nuts out there. Even some who, for one reason or another, have favorable opinions about the Jews. How is it possible for a Christian to have favorable opinions about the Jews? It's like Pastor Hagee, like Jerry Falwell. If you're good to the Jews, eventually they'll become Christian from goodness. You understand? It's not much like the Christians today who are backing Israel. Now, you can say one of two things. You can say, well, since their ultimate goal is to make Israel a Christian country, Chabzal and Bud. Or you can say what Israel says is, I need any friend I can get. And they're not making me do anything. And they're giving a ton of money and support. You all know, uh, who is it? Uh, Trump said, I moved the embassy to Jerusalem. And the Jews didn't say thank you. The Christians said thank you. You understand? They're the ones who, you know, Pat Roberts and all these other groups. So the origins of this are in the 17th century in the English Civil War. That's the remarkable thing. Now, I'm simplifying a very complex subject, but I have to do so. This is not a college course. Uh, the very complex subject, indeed. Suffice it to say that several things came together uh, in the 1640s. One of them uh, is that people started to think about the Jews. Some people started to say maybe the Jews should come back. Uh, maybe it should be uh, because the Jews are the people of the Old Testament. Others said, how can you do that? And there's a big machlokis among the Christians, you know, and if you bring the Jews back, will they uh, will they be converted? You know what I mean? Others, will they see the truth of Christianity? And others said they don't have to. There's a huge set of de battles of debates and pamphlets and things like that. So for the first time, people started to say, oh, maybe Jews will come back to England. And there already were X number, listen closely, of Portuguese Jews who were living in England off and on or full-time, who didn't say that they're Jewish, who were pretending to be Christians or something like that. You know, when I say something like that, their status was indeterminate. And uh, starting in 1630s, let's say. And, uh, you know, nobody was paying that much attention to them. But now that they're actually discussing whether the Jews should come back to England or not. So uh, these guys came to the fore. And they were merchants. They were well-to-do people. They were good for business. And uh, people started to, to consider whether or not they should reconsider the English attitude towards the Jews. Now, Menashe and Israel had nothing to do with this at this point. And to be perfectly honest, the only guy that counted at the top was Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell had his Jew. <laughs> I actually did a, uh, a series on this last summer. Must be online. If you go to my YouTube channel called Jews and War, I'm pretty sure my son put it up online. If you go over to Jews and War on my YouTube channel, and you listen to the, I think it was the first one, the second one, he talked about Albert Cromwell and this guy Caravaggio, who was a Portuguese Jew, which means it was Murano, and he became Albert Cromwell's uh, go-to guy, meaning he supplied the Cromwell armies with the food and the weapons, you know, Jewish style. And not only that, but since him and Albert Cromwell were friends, Albert Cromwell made his business to be friends with this guy, uh, so he used the Jewish network. You know the old joke, Bushes and Borough Park, remember that? That was the Jewish grapevine, they know everything. In the from world, they know everything. If I want to find out what's really happening by Trump, I just have to find the right yid. See? If I want to know what's really happening secretly behind the scenes in Biden, I mean, in Joe Biden, or even by Putin or all the rest of it, you got to get the right Lababacher, the right Hasidic guy, the right uh, lawyer, is that Nate Lewin? I don't know, Dershowitz, you know. You get the right guy. The Jews know everything. And so if it's the 17th century, it's the 1640s, there's huge networks of these Jewish merchants, you know, all over Europe, uh, Ashkenaz and Sephard, 
If it's a Portuguese, you got other Portuguese secretly in Portugal and Spain. You got Jewish communities of these guys in Bordeaux. I'll tell you what's happening in France. You have ones obviously in Amsterdam. You have other ones in Hamburg. Tell you what's Tutsuk in in uh, you know Germany. Uh, you find Ashkenazi guys to hook up with. They'll tell you what's going on in Poland and so on and so forth. And one of the if you're Oliver Cromwell, one of the things you want, always need to know is are friends and relatives of the king who is dead. Are they plotting against you? The answer is always yes. And do they have secret uh, groups, uh, subversive in England? Of course. And uh, who are they? Whatever. Well, this Jewish guy used his uh, network, and they found it like it became like the the personal uh, CIA of Oliver Cromwell. Now, Cromwell was a smart cookie. That wasn't his only source of information, but it's one of the important ones. And so, a Jew knows another Jew knows another Jew that can find out there's a plot to poison Cromwell. You know, things like that. Or what exactly is Prince Charles, who's the successor to the king? What's he doing in Amsterdam? Well, who's his girlfriend these days? You know, uh, who are his friends? What are they plotting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Cromwell was an extraordinary guy. He just was. He knew what's happening in Turkey, all the rest of it, mainly through these Jewish contexts. The reason I'm telling you all this is Cromwell highly valued his Jewish context. They were very uh, great, helped him. This Caravai guy, Mamish helped him in a hundred ways. And and Oliver Cromwell is a Puritan, so he's not a Catholic. He hates the Catholics. He wants to kill all the Catholics. In fact, he did kill all the Catholics in Ireland, or a lot of them. And, uh, he, you know, uh, he's interested in the Bible, the scriptures. Of course he's a Christian, goes without saying. But being that he's very interested in the uh, Old Testament, he didn't feel bad about Jews. You get what I'm saying? He wasn't anti-Semite in, the, in, in, in that sense. And some of the guys around Cromwell, for crazy Christian theological reasons, like Jews. Like I say, it's like a Jerry Falwell is a Pastor Hagee type thing. So you had a unique situation that never would have happened had there not been an English Civil War. And they, for 20 years, uh, you hit Sidi Yad Hashem. The 20 years, the royal government was out. The parliamentary government was in. The dictatorship of Oliver Cromwell. And Cromwell was a guy, this is unique in the pre-modern world, who is not anti-Semitic. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Do you get it? And so the question arose in a lot of different varieties. I mean, I don't want to go too long in this. If you're interested more, you listen to the uh, to the uh, YouTube thing. The question is, you know, what's the story with the Jews and should they be allowed back in England? Uh, what was in favor was that there had never been a law passed by Parliament kicking the Jews out. It was just a, like a royal zach. Like we have in Halacha, is it Dina de Malchusa or Dina de Malka? Like the Ramban, whoever it is. You know, the Dina de Malka is less of a taikif than Dina de Malchusa. Does that make sense? And so, you know, Edward I kicked him out, but Kabbalah Kachpolta, you know, another guy can bring him back in. So, uh, that means if it's around the late 1640s and 1650 or, or so, uh, one of the items on the agenda is the Jews. Now, there's a thousand other items. There was an English Civil War going on. There were battles with the Royalists. Uh, there was reorganization of the country. Oliver Cromwell himself was running wars with other countries in Europe. Interesting, one of the wars he had was with Holland, even though it's funny, because they're all Protestant. And, but it was, over, it was over economics. Oliver Cromwell was a real strong Christian, but he was, no, he was a smart economic guy also. And he wanted to build up English economy, and he did do so. So even though... Holland and England ought to be united against the Catholics, but they had a war too, and our hero was Dutch. So, from the time this started to come onto the public 
Rishusarab, you know, uh, the, the, it's discussed in parliament and in the newspapers and in the public forums, all the rest of it. Everybody said like this. You want to know what starts with the Jews? Call Menashe ben Israel. He's the big intellectual. Like I said before, he's at Jonathan Sachs. He knows English. Yeah. And he can explain what's going on. And it was in, it was in the interest of Menashe and Israel to help this because England, he saw be a place to go for the Jews, which he was 100% correct. And anyway, in his mind, and this is, he wrote books on this, uh, one's called uh, Vindicam Yudjidiorum, A Vindication of the Jews, meaning the people in England who were opposed to it, they said, don't bring in the Jews, the Jews have horns, they killed this one, they do the blood libel, they cheat, they this, that, and the other. And he wrote a whole book in Latin to say what we call apologetics. Now, you don't know what I mean, apologetics. And it called Sanegar, a defense attorney. So that's what it means. He wrote a book like Defending the Jews. We don't have horns, and I'll prove it from this way and that way. And then another one is, you know, the Jews are not crooks, and the Jews are not schnooks, and the Jews, um, you know, help the economy. And you can't kill us because we're in a lot of different countries. So if we get rid of the Jews in one country, we're still in another country anyway. And God made it that way. You understand? So if you're going, uh, you know, to get the Jews, you're going against God. And all kind of arguments over there. Uh, from, and by the way, always with secular proofs. You understand? You see from the Turks, you see from the from, from from the Germans, you see from history. It's a language. It's written for the for the Gentile world, right? Uh, and he also wrote a book to say that um, if you want the Mashiach to come, I'm speaking to Christians as well as the Jews. If you want the Mashiach to come, you have to follow the biblical prophecies. Remember, he had a moral type education. He knew Tanakh cold. And from his interactions with Christians, he knew they're very heavily into Tanakh in the Old Testament. And he said, look at Isaiah at the end, in chapter 66. We're talking about the uh, future times. And uh, what does it say over there? That, uh, you know, uh, because it's talking about World War III, Mashiach site, that kind of business. And in 6619, it says, I'll send the Jews as platim. El Hagoyim to the different nations, Tarshish and Pul and Lud and Moshekeshes and Tubal and Yavan, and also Ha'im Harachokim, the faraway islands, Shloshamashimi, Loros Kvodi, Vigiras Kodi Bagoyim, who are the faraway islands that the, 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 the Jews should go to in order to proclaim God's glory there? Well, it's England, right? Ha'im meaning as far as Eretz Yisrael is concerned, England is Ha'im Harachokim. Uh, now, you can agree with this, I'm just telling you, that's the kind of argument that would appeal to a Pastor Hagee uh, or possibly an Oliver Cromwell in the 1650s. So he wrote another book about this also called, um, what was it called? One's called Vindicate Judiorum, the other one, I forget the name. But you can Google it, you can see yourself. Again, in Latin, and to bring out the idea that, uh, you know, the, the, the English might be the Ten Lost Tribes. Or maybe the Indians in uh, in, in in America, you know, the American Indians might be the Ten Lost Tribes. Let's start thinking about the Ten Lost Tribes. Let's start about Mashiach time. And the Jews scattered in, in all the countries is part of the fulfillment of the Mashiach site. Therefore, England should let the Jews back in. I repeat, you can say it's all a bunch of bull, or you can say, oh, okay. Now, if you're England, and it's the 1650s, there's so many different groups competing with each other, uh, that there will be people who say, that's yeah, it's all baloney, but other people say, no, it's not. Now, 
Uh, what's interesting is they called him to come to England. He couldn't come because there was a war between Holland and England. But when the war was off, he was brought... I want you to understand. Oliver Cromwell gave him personal invitation. And he's coming as a guest to the British government. And he should address the parliament uh, and address what's called Whitehall. Uh, they had conferences of all different, in, different in, interest groups. And he was treated with the best covet. Because I said before, this, this is what I mean by the Jonathan Sachs. His reputation preceded him. Now, this is so funny. In his own show, he was a mom of Rodney Dangerfield. But out in the glacier world, especially in England, they didn't know that. They considered him a tremendous intellectual, which he was. And he knew how to make a kiddush Hashem by the guy. You understand? The way he conducted himself, the way he acted, the way he spoke to people, the way he... Everywhere, he left that kind of impression that people said like this. Listen, I'm not Jewish, I'm a Christian, but wow, he's a man. Right? I can see he's a hush of a person. The Jews have have a have a, a you know a, a, an impressive leader in him, right? This is very unusual. Okay, I repeat, this is the 17th century. Such things didn't happen. That's why I said, not so much jokingly, said Jonathan Sachs in the 17th century, because when he came to England, uh, he was treated with Kav Malachim, and he gave his speech and he made the arguments uh, very dignified. Uh, even the people disagree with him. They say, oh, he's a very chashua person, he's a dignified, you know, we agree, we disagree, the producer come back to England. And the trouble is, that I remember he had a son, if I remember correctly, he said one son's learning yeshiva in Poland, isn't that interesting? Because that's where the real yeshiva is, like a guy from America sending his kid to Israel to learn, uh, in the 17th century. And the other one, and, and, you know, he lived through the Chamelnitsky time, when a lot of Ashkenazi Jews ran away from Poland came to Amsterdam. But his other son was with him in England and died. I think that's what happened. And that like broke his heart. And he took the body back to uh, Holland and he died on the way. It must have been, I, I assume, since he was so young, must have died from a broken heart. Now, maybe he got sick. I wasn't there. It's the 17th century. So you can get a cold and die from that. But Lee B. Umberley, you know, uh, somebody could look it up. Probably died from a broken heart, from a depression. Which means that, um, what do you call it? He didn't see that, you know, Parliament or the English should say, oh, we're going to let the Jews back in. Uh, it came there as like an episode. But the key point is, he made a very good Roshem for J Judaism and Jewish religion by his whole Hanhaga, his whole Hisnagus, his whole way of talking, the arguments he advanced. He knew how to talk to a guy in a, in a way that, that's totally dignified as far as Judaism is concerned. He wasn't Mavata in anything. Everybody knows he's a Shomer Shabbos. All the rest, it's not a question as to twist anything or reform the Jewish religion. None of that. He stands and he stands. He's a, a, a Jew of the Gemara, of the Talmud, even of the Zohar. Here I am. And the game is impressive. You know what I'm Because he speaks our language. He can explain Judaism in a way that we don't get from other Jews. The Jews that we know who can speak our language, are a bunch of these merchants, a bunch of grubber yungen, you know? And the rabbis, all are like Yiddish-speaking, they have no shachas to anything. They're not, they're not human beings. But this guy obviously is. And that's what I mean when I say he's most unusual in this regard. And, uh, and, and when he died, I mean, he was buried over there in Holland. All You can go to the cemetery if you want to see it now. Uh, but I think uh, his reputation grew afterwards. In his in his own community, I don't get the impression. I really think it's like a Rodney Dangerfield. I don't think he uh, he got the respect 
anywhere near that he did, because these rich Balabab, the only thing that matters is money. You say, if you're so smart, how come you're poor? You get it? That's how they thought. Now, I say again, uh, the Dutch held from him, the intellectuals, a Rembrandt, they say, painted as a famous picture, it's supposed to be him, uh, from Rembrandt, so he obviously impressed him. Rembrandt was a famous Dutch painter who lived either next door to him or a block away from him. Uh, there are many other people who are not Jewish that felt away. But in the community itself, you know, it's more like, it seems to me, more like a money, um, what's the right word, uh, money-grubbing type of crowd. And so his reputation, therefore, uh, only grew later on in history, you see? Because, specifically in the case of England, uh, he made the formal argument in favor of the Jews and how it won't hurt the England, it'll only help. And Jews, or by the way, you know, won't try to convert anybody. There won't be a bad hashba, um, you know, that sort of thing. Oliver Cromwell realized there's big opposition in England to bringing the Jews back. Uh, there were large interest groups. And even though he was a dictator, he wasn't that time of dictator. He wasn't Stalin, you know. So he had to take into account what large interest group being, and he had what they call Whitehall Conference. They invited all, it's very interesting. They invited all the uh, big shots and who, Nogueira, the merchants, the parliamentarians, the theologians, I don't know who else, all kind of people like that, to have a full discussion, uh, you know, around the table of the Jewish question. It's, it's very fascinating. You can go, you know, look all this stuff up if you want. And it never, what, what's really interesting is they never said, okay, the Jews can come back. But it's clear uh, that Oliver Cromwell, who probably was more influenced by his Jewish agent than anything else, in my opinion, that's a different schmooze. Uh, Oliver Cromwell, you know, basically gave him the wink, which means like this, okay, um, from now on, uh, if Jews come here, don't ask, don't tell. Get it? Uh, provided Jews maintain a basically low profile, and there are not too many of them, which they weren't, and they're all of this, mostly of the merchant type and all that, which is helping the economy. What the heck? You see, because if it's the 1650s and even afterwards, uh, the Jews are not the problem, the Catholics are. If you know your English history, and again, I can't go through this in too great detail, if you know your English history, uh, the great fear, I mean, uh, an insane fear, was the Catholics will come back. Yes, then they'll start burning heretics at the stake. So everybody went through Catholic fears. That's good for the Jews, because it means like this. The Jews are not the problem. <laughs> you understand? If they find out somebody's Jewish, you might like a Jew, you might not like a Jew, whatever. But it's not a threat to the state. The Catholics threat to the state. And so from then on, uh, this is the last years of Oliver Cromwell, so it came the idea, Jews will come in, don't ask, don't tell. You understand? And uh, that, so basically what happened, as I understand this, is like America with the Mexicans before Trump anyway, which is they're not allowed in the country, but don't ask, don't tell. You know, they're not enforcing that law. And that's how it went. Now, not long after this, Oliver Cromwell died in 1659, I think. And the king came back, meaning the, the son of the previous king whose head was chopped off by Cromwell. Cromwell killed Charles I, and after his death, Charles II came in. It's a good thing uh, the Jews were scared because the king will bring back the old system, and the old system is very bigoted and no room for the Jews. But it happened to be Charles II was a big playboy, and when he was in Holland hiding from Cromwell, the Jews helped him over there. And um, 
he himself was secretly a Catholic. That's like the dirty secret. So for that reason, he wanted religious toleration, so to speak. And the bottom line is, he said, you know, just leave the Jews the heck alone. Now, I'm simplifying, but from that, that's how the Jews came back to England. So what's ironic is, Menashe ben Israel became very famous in history because of his role in bringing the Jews back to England, even though he played a, a fairly small part in that, uh, if you actually look at it closely. But the part he played was, was uh, very important because he made the Judaism look very dignified. You understand? He made a big Roshim with the people over there, and that part of the background, how a person like Cromwell could stop it in and say, okay, we'll let the Jews, uh, you know, we'll, we'll let the Jews in, sort of, uh, kind of, uh, maybe. And based on that, the Jews came back to England, which is of the greatest importance, because not only Jews in England, America was an English colony, as you all know, and the Jews were able to come in 13 colonies because it was under England, and England was basically the best country for the Jews. Uh, the Jews didn't have civil rights there, and there were all kinds of you know, issues and whatever, but relative to other countries, uh, the Jews had it the best in England. Okay, the Jews had it the best in England. And um, even today, I was, uh, I'm sure I mentioned this, in 2019, before all this junk happened, I went on a trip, I led a trip to Central Europe, and meanwhile I had Shabbos a few days in London, first time I was ever there, with Ari and Heather, and I remember one day we went to the old, uh, is it the Bevis Marks, that's what it is? The old shul. And what he uh, basically said was, uh, I met the rabbi, the young American guy, and he said, this shul has never missed a minion since 1701. <laughs> Even World War II. Never missed a minion since 1701. I think in the Corona they did, if I remember. Uh, I mean, have seen in the, in somewhere in the, on the internet. But uh, that means like this. You know, under England, you had... Uh, the freedom to, to to practice Judaism, hundred percent. Like I say, it's not perfect, but it was as close to perfect as you can get. So Menachem and Israel became like a, a iconic figure as far as that's concerned. But to me and to you, from a practical perspective, my recommendation to you is: if you want to be smart, get a hold of this conciliator. It's probably online. Um, it's been reprinted every once in a while. I have one from a. I used to have one that got lost. And I bought one online for, I think, 40 bucks or whatever with an introduction by Elisheba Karlbach, a page or two. And it's the old printing. And you can you can do it for free just getting online. And if you use it, first of all, I think you'll find it very useful. And second of all, uh, you'll get an appreciation for who Menashev and Israel was. I will talk way over time. And with that, I bid you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.